0: All right, well, one of the things, uh, man, this is weird because we really only have tonight and the next week, and then we're done for the semester, for, um, for the fall, with doing large groups in here. Um, but we have been trekking our way through the Gospel of Mark this semester. And one of the reasons why in RUF we think it's important to take books of the Bible and methodically work our way through them is because if, if we really do believe that the Bible is God's word, and here at RUF we do, I know not all of y- y'all may believe that, which is fine, we're glad you're here regardless of what you think about that. But if, if we as Christians are going to say, okay, we really do believe that the Bible is God's word, therefore we have to take all of it seriously, which means we cannot avoid certain passages that we don't like, certain passages that we may find uncomfortable, certain passages that may be offensive. And honestly, if it were up to me, I don't know if I would have necessarily selected... Chapter 7 of Mark. But here we are. We just finished chapter 6. Now we're in chapter 7. And so we take it as it comes. And you'll see as I read this, if you haven't looked at this before, that it's, um, it's got some claws on it. It's, this is like Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to kick you in your teeth for a little bit. But I really do think for as offensive and as hard-edged as this may feel initially, I do want to hold out to you. This, this passage has incredible hope. Embedded in as as well. So let me read it, and then we'll kind of unpack it for the rest of our time. It says this. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, Lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is God's word. Let me pray before we take a look at it. Okay? Let's pray. Father, would you be gracious to us now in these next few moments and would you teach us? Father, we're weak, we're tired, we're at the end of the busy semester. Will you give us the attention that we need? And Spirit, will you soften up our hearts that your word would really be able to penetrate our hearts in a way that would bring real hope, real conviction, real transformation? And that's our prayer. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me begin by giving you three vignettes, three little kind of scenarios. Vignette number one. Have you ever gotten a voicemail before? And you check and you see how long it was before you actually listen to it. And it's like four minutes long before you listen to it. You're like, get grieved. Did this dude just like leave me a sermon? And, and so you listen to it. And it all, it, all it is is your friend saying, hey, sorry I missed you. Call me back. And they hang up. Or at least they thought they hung up. But the phone is on and they're like in their car. And you know what you do. You keep listening to what they're doing, how they live their life. Because now they're living their life in a way that they don't know anybody else is watching or listening. For four minutes. But have you ever been on the, the, the kind of the other side of that where somebody comes up to you and is like hey you know that voicemail that you left me yesterday when you were in your car and you thought you only said hey call me back the phone was actually on for another three minutes after that and you think to yourself oh my word <laughs> what did I do that they heard was I, was I singing what, what was I singing in the car did I say something bad about them that they heard me say it's like you start running through all the scenarios and you start freaking out Scenario number two. Let's say uh, you get a phone call from me, Matt Howell, your campus minister. And I say, hey, um, let's go grab lunch tomorrow. I want to talk with you about something. And you say, oh, okay, that's cool. What do you want to talk about? And I say, "Uh, we'll talk about it tomorrow. My guess is there would be a certain level of anxiety and security as you're thinking, oh my gosh, what did I do? You start scrolling through. What did he find out about me? Did I say something bad about him that somehow got back around to him and now he wants to confront me about it? You start freaking out on the inside. Vignette two. Vignette three. You're in your car and you're driving and you look in your rearview mirror and behind you is a police officer. Not with his lights on. He's just back there driving. He's just behind you, hanging out. And so once you notice him, you're 10 and 2 and you're very rigidly going the speed limit. And so after a while you think, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to change lanes and let him kind of go around me. So you casually shift lanes and they shift with you. And you think in your mind, oh my gosh, okay, what did I do? Did I run that stop sign? You start scrolling through your mind, all the different scenarios of what you did wrong. Now what do all of these three vignettes really say about the human condition? Here's what I think they say. Here's what I think they point to. And here's what I think they essentially prove that everybody knows that there's something deeply wrong with us. We all have this sort of deep level, buried sense of guilt. And these little scenarios, these little stories just show us that we're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of being found out. That deep inner sense of guilt, that deep inner sense of what the Bible's going to refer to in this passage as being unclean, that sense of feeling dirty, that sense of uncleanliness is what I'm talking about, that all of us have it, and it takes these little different scenarios to really expose and to show you, yeah, we all have this. So the question really is, okay, then what do we do with it? If every one of us has this deep, buried sense of guilt that we know we've done something wrong, we don't really know how and in what situation, what do we do with it? Well, as Sinclair Ferguson points out, he's a um, theologian, scholar, pastor, he really points out that this passage kind of paints two different approaches on what to do with that deep inner sense of guilt. And those are the kind of the two different approaches I want to look at with you tonight. The first is what he calls the outside-in approach of dealing with that inner sense of uncleanliness, the outside-in. And then the second approach is the inside-out. So those are our two points. Those are the two things that we're talking about tonight. Outside-in, inside-out. Outside-in, inside-out. Okay, so let's look at the first one the outside-in approach to dealing with the uncleanliness. And really, if we're going to understand this, we've got to understand the first five verses because things are a little kind of weird here. Here's what's going on. The Pharisees and the kind of the religious elite of the day, the, the, the Jewish people had all of these ceremonies about washing stuff. They were washing everything. As it says in this passage, they're washing their hands, they're washing their cups, they're washing their pots. In some of your translations, it says that they were washing their couches. That was just part of what they did. Now, the reason they were into washing everything was not because they were germaphobes. It wasn't because of hygienic reasons. It was for spiritual reasons. It was for religious reasons. So in their mind, here was the way that they typically thought. If I come into contact with something unclean out there, something dirty out there, then I'm going to get infected. Then that's going to make me unclean. That's going to make me dirty. And if I'm dirty, I can't come into God's presence. I've got to scrub up if I'm going to come into God's presence. So the way that they thought about going into God's presence was a lot like how a doctor would think about going into surgery. You've got to be sanitized. You've got to be scrubbed up. You've got to be clean. And so they washed everything. Now, if you think about it, that, that's... That may initially sound like weird, like superstitious, religious, mumbo jumbo. But if you think about it, actually, it makes a lot of sense. Because if you are um, finding somebody interesting and attractive, and you end up taking them out on a date, my guess is, I hope so, before you go on a date, you would shower, right? You're going out with somebody, you think they're really special, you think they're really important. (laughs) I see some snickering in the back, which makes me think that not everybody uh, showers before dates, but that's, let me give you a little rule. You should shower before you go on dates with people. So let's say, you you know, if you're going on a date with somebody, you shower up. You put on deodorant. You wash your, you know, you brush your teeth. You put on the, you know, the mouthwash. You're cleaning up. You're trying to get the dirt off of you because, in your mind, you think, if I'm going to come into the presence of somebody that I think is attractive, important, special, then I want to look clean. I want to, I want to be look nice. So the Pharisees understood if I'm going to come into God's presence, I can't be dirty. I've got to be clean. But the, remember, the way that they diagnose the problem is the way that I get dirty, the way that I get unclean is when I interact with bad stuff out there. In other words, sin is a virus that I've got to be really careful that I don't catch. Sin is out there. And, and so here's what Here's what a, let's let's translate this into the modern context. Here's what a modern day Pharisee would sound like and look like. It would be someone that says, okay, I I am going to stop my bad behavior and I'm going to start doing good behavior. I'm going to clean up my bad language and I'm going to start using good language. I'm going to stay away from the strip. I'm I'm not going to go to any more, you know, Greek parties. I'm going to avoid all of that. I'm not going to go to rated R movies. I'm not going to read Harry Potter and Hunger Games. I'm going to avoid the bad stuff out there because when I come into contact with the bad stuff, then I get infected, and I don't want to get infected. And so Jesus is basically saying that's the outside-in approach to spiritual reality. You clean up the outside, and the inside is made right. The inside is made clean. But he's going to show us that doesn't work impossible. It can't work. He's going to show us, well, I, I think he gives us a lot of different reasons. I'm going to show you two reasons from the passage that he kind of flat out says this is why this doesn't work. He's basically saying the reason why you're writing bad prescriptions is because you've misdiagnosed the illness, and that's why you're writing bad prescriptions. But, but here's, the, here's the first reason why the outside-in approach doesn't work. It's because it doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't get to the heart Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrite, Jesus is hijacking from the Greek drama world. The word hypocrite was the same word for actor, play actor. And actors back in, that, back in the day, uh, in Jesus' times, would actually wear external masks that they would put on their face. And that's how you knew what the different characters were. So we have somebody on the outside, somebody completely different on the inside. And Jesus is saying, that's what you're doing with your spirituality when that's your approach to life. You clean up the outside, but it doesn't, it doesn't affect the inside. You're just dressing up. You're just putting on a costume, but it doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change what you actually love. It's only changing your behavior. And so think of it, you know, th- think of it like this. I- I'm sure this happened to me when I was younger. I'm sure this happened to you when you were younger. You wanted to go play outside, but your mom or your dad said, you need to go clean your room. You're like, oh, I don't want to go clean my room. I want to go play outside. And so they start you know, kind of up in the ante and threatening punishments if you don't go clean your room. So you say, okay, fine. I'm going to go clean my room. So you go to your room. Well it's, I, I, I kind of have vivid memories of me doing this when I was younger. So I'm cleaning my room. I'm like putting my toys in the bin where they're supposed to go. But the whole time I'm slamming stuff around and kicking stuff and huffing. I'm making up my bed and throwing the sheets on. And I'm just throwing a tantrum, but I'm cleaning my room. And so really the question is, am I I really doing what my parents wanted me to do? Well, you know, in one sense, yeah. I'm obeying, I'm cleaning my room, but I'm hating the whole time that I'm doing it. It doesn't really, it didn't affect what I loved. It didn't affect my heart. And so this this is why some of you, either this is you or you know people, that have kind of done the party thing here at Tennessee. You've done the party thing, you've kind of gotten burned out by it and bored by it. And then all of a sudden, you kind of find yourself in RUF, or you find yourself in church, and you find yourself getting really religious. And just as mysteriously as you arrived in sort of a religious circle, just as mysteriously as you got here, you mysteriously sort of disappear. And you go right back after a while. Because for a season of doing RUF, for a season of going to church, a season of going to Bible study, that alone doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change what you love. It only changes your behavior. And behavior change just for a season. If it's not affecting the heart, then it doesn't change you. And you revert right back to what you always loved. And this is why, for example, uh, it's very possible to be one way at RUF, to be one way at church, one way in whatever sort of other ministry thing you're involved in and to appear very religious, very spiritual, very into Jesus, and yet when you're alone live a completely different way. Be messing around with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, going too far on the weekends, going crazy on the weekends, whatever. You live one way here and one way here. It's because this alone doesn't change what you actually love. It's just it's just photoshopping yourself. And, that, and that's what Jesus is saying, is, is you're just rearranging the outside, you're just wearing a mask. Behavior alone, the outside-in approach doesn't change, it doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't go deep enough because it doesn't deal with your heart. But here's the second reason why Jesus says this doesn't work. It's because it doesn't actually deal with your selfishness. It doesn't, you know, the outside-in, not only doesn't, it doesn't deal with your heart, it doesn't deal with your selfishness. Here's where I get this from. If you look at verses 9 through 13, 9 through 13. Jesus gives us this example to kind of drive this point home. And heres he's putting his finger on this practice that was going on at the time. What he's doing, he says, okay, one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and your mother. He's basically saying, look, that's in the Bible. It's one of the ten. It's in the Bible. And then he says, okay, so there was this thing that they were doing at the time where very religious people, people who were super spiritual, would say, okay, I've got this money. God's, you know, blessed me with money. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my money, and I'm going to set aside my money as being devoted to God. This was this practice that they kind of came up with. And that whole practice was called Corbin, which is a word that just meant gift to God. So these people would say, okay, this is nowhere in the Bible, but, you know, it's a good thing. It's a nice spiritual thing to say, okay, my money is now devoted to God. And so Jesus says, okay, so what happens then when your parents get older and they need financial assistance from you because they're dependent on their children, and they come to you and say, hey, I need like, financial help because I'm you know, old, I can't work, I have no means of income. People's response at that time was literally, well, you know, mom and dad, you know, I love you, you've been great, but I can't give you any of my money because my money is devoted to God now. And so they would basically use sort of this man-made thing that made them look very spiritual, very devoted, but they would use this sort of man-made strategy to essentially make themselves, to, to reinforce their selfishness. It's really my money, but it looks really pious. And what Jesus is saying is, you're disobeying the Bible. Like, you're going against the whole honor your father and mother thing because you're, you're choosing rather to obey things that you've made up. Here it is, verse 13. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition. Here's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, look, the outside-in religious approach, where you clean up the outside, you avoid all the bad things, you do the religious things, all it's doing is just rearranging your selfishness. It's making you look really great, really spiritual, but it's really just all about you. It's all about you. There's this great um, story that I've heard Charles Spurgeon tell. The story goes like this. It's this thing that he made up. He said, okay, so there's this king overseeing his kingdom, and one of his servants comes to him and, and, and really just wants to honor the king, bless the king. And so he brings him the biggest carrot from his garden, and he presents to the king, you know, this is the biggest carrot that I grew. I just want to honor you and bless you. And so the king takes this carrot and says, you know what, I'm so... Flattered and honored that you would present me with your biggest carrot. You know what? I'm going to give you an entire acre of my land that you can cultivate and garden and do whatever you want with. It's, it's my gift to you. And while this whole transaction is going on, there's this other servant in the court that overhears this exchange, and he thinks, man, if that's what you get for a stupid carrot, what would I get if I brought something in better? So the next day he comes in with like the stallion like this war horse, and brings it in and presents it to the king and says, you know, your majesty, here, please, I want to honor you and and show my respects to you by presenting you with this war horse. And the king very wisely accepts it and says, thank you. There's kind of this awkward silence where the guy's like, and what's coming next? And so the king says, look, yesterday the servant gave me the carrot but you are giving yourself the horse. And the point is, I think it's very possible to come to God with all of our stuff, all of our religious, pious devotion. Say, here's all this great stuff that I'm doing for you, and it's really just all for us. And what's scary about this is that this means that you can love RUF, be involved in RUF. You can love your church, be involved in your church. And love leading Bible studies, doing Bible studies, reading the Bible every day, and journaling about it. Only listening to Christian music, ministering to other people, and all of it be just about you, which is very scary. But this is this is his point: is that it's very possible if you're just, if you're doing the outside-in approach, you can do all the religious stuff and look really great, really spiritual, really pious, but it's all just one enormous scandal about just reinforcing yourself, your own pride, your own selfishness. And so this is why it says it doesn't work. It It doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't deal with the heart and it doesn't deal with your selfishness. So, let's look at the second approach. He basically says the outside in doesn't work. Let's look at the Inside out. If you look at verse 14, 14 is kind of where this thing hinges and goes into a different direction. And Jesus now begins to lay out the right approach, the inside out approach. And, and Okay, so look at it. Jesus basically says, your approach is not working because you've misdiagnosed the problem. You thought the problem is out there. The problem is not out there. It's in here. Look at verse 15. He says this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Jesus is saying the problem is not out there in the world, in the culture, the problem is in your heart. The problem is not outside of you, the problem is inside of you, your heart. And really, for for the Hebrew mind, the heart was the center of gravity for your personality. It was the nucleus of your identity. So for Jesus to say the problem is your heart, Jesus is driving all the way to the center of who you are and say the problem is there. And here's what this means. If you flesh out the implications, when you lust, the problem is not the Internet. The problem is that you just love perverted sexuality. When you get hammered, the problem is not your sorority or your fraternity or even the alcohol. The problem is that you just want to escape the world that you're actually living in. You want to be your own king. You know, When you're angry and frustrated, the problem is not your roommate. The problem is that you're just incredibly selfish and you hate it when somebody else blocks you from doing what you want to do. Again, this is Jesus' point, is that the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. This is why The Walking Dead is way more biblical than we think it is. Because the outside-in approach thinks, oh, sin is out there. I'm going to get infected. It's like a virus. I'm going to catch it. But remember in Walking Dead, if you've seen it, in season two, I think, is when the big discovery comes out that we're all infected. Everyone's infected. Even if you don't die, I mean, even if you do die, not by a zombie, you're still infected. Spoiler alert, it's season two. You should have gotten that far ahead. It's like season five or four by now, so sorry if I ruined it for you, but we're all infected. But that's the point, and that's Jesus' point, is that we're all infected. And so think about it like this. Let's say I filled up a glass of water, filled it up to the brim, and I brought, you know, that little chair over here, and I put the glass of water on that chair. If I just gently jostled the chair... Water's going to spill out of the glass, right? So when you kind of just get jostled in life, when someone breaks up with you, when someone cuts you off in traffic, when some roommate doesn't do the dishes, and the thing that spills out of you is anger, frustration, bitterness, or despair, despondency, that just tells you where all of that came from. It spilled out because that's what was in there. And this is Jesus' point. Look at verses um, 21 through 23. I'll, I'll read it again, but good grief. These are scary verses. These are like Jesus curb stomping you, but here's, here's verse 21. Jesus says, For from within, within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. folly. <laughs> folly. All these evils... Come from inside and make a man unclean. This is Jesus' point. You're the problem. Matt Howell's the problem. That's his point. You know, back in the early 1900s, the London Times, you know, the big newspaper in London, put out this kind of project where they were going to ask a question and have all these great thinkers write in the answer to the question. The question that they threw out there was, "What's wrong with the world?" Which is like, the, it's, it's a great question because you get like these scholars, philosophers, and people are just gonna, you know, swing for the fences with that one. So, so they throw out this question, "What's wrong with the world?" And G.K. Chesterton writes in his answer. G.K. Chesterton was like the Roman Catholic version of C.S. Lewis before there was C.S. Lewis. And here's his answer. So here's the question, "What's wrong with the world?" And here's literally his. Essay. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I think, I mean, that's brilliant. He gets it. He gets it. You think about what's wrong with the world, it's me. All along, I thought it was the strip. I thought it was the culture. I thought it was my sorority. I thought it was the alcohol. I thought it was the internet. I thought it was my parents. I thought it was my professors. I thought it was Harry Potter. I thought it was the rated R movies. I thought it was whatever. The problem is not that. The problem is you. The problem is me. This is the point. This is how Jesus is diagnosing the problem. You will never find the solution unless you're willing to embrace Jesus' diagnosis that the problem is us, the problem is our heart. Inside, something is screwed up, something is jacked up, and we know it. So, what's his solution then? If that's his diagnosis of the problem, what's his prescription? And here's where the hope comes. Here's where the hope comes. Look at, verse, um, look at verse 19. The author of Mark puts in this little editorial footnote. And there's a, big little, there's a big little clue in there, but here's what he says. He says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. This total side note in passing. But, what, but what, this enormous moment is happening in this passage because in this moment, Jesus is declaring... That all of the ceremonial, food, purity laws of the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. And what we see Jesus doing in this passage is he's declaring something that was once unclean, clean. And here's why this is brilliant and here's why this is beautiful. Is because in this passage we get this little glimpse of Jesus' heart. That he wants to make that which is unclean clean, he wants to purify and cleanse that which is dirty. But you know, if you are going to clean something that's dirty, this is how cleaning works, by the way. If you're going to clean something that's dirty, whatever it was that was clean has to become dirty. So think of it like this: You know, I remember when I was in high school, the first time I bought this little tub of. OxyPad face wipes. You know what I'm talking about? You get this little thing at CVS. It's those little round, gleaming white things that are kind of wet with, I don't know, whatever they put on alcohol or whatever. And you take it out and you kind of rub your face and it's supposed to get all the oil and grime and whatever off of your face. And if you've done this, you take this white thing out and do it. And I remember when I was in high school, the first time I did it, wipe your face and then you look at the thing and you're <laughs> disgusted because it's brown, and you think, am I that nasty of a human being that I would wipe my face? It was like, apparently yes, apparently yes, but that's what it is. That's how cleaning works. If you're going to get something clean, something that is already clean has to become dirty. Toilet paper has to get soiled if it's going to clean your body. Lovely image. Kleenex. Kleenex has to get splattered with snot if it's going to clean your nose. You know, a napkin has to get messy if it's going to wipe the spaghetti sauce off of your face, right? There's always a trading of places when things get clean. And really, what this passage does is, is it points to and it reminds us of that great passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says this. God made him who knew no sin Talking about Jesus. God made him who knew no sin, he was completely clean, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what that verse is saying that's saying, at the cross, we switch places with Jesus. At the cross, Jesus is wrapping himself, as it were, in the disgustiness and the filthiness of our sin. And so, in God's eyes, at that moment when Jesus is at the cross, he might as well have been covered in vomit and excrement and like animal carcasses, disgusting and foul. And God looks at that and gives to Jesus the just punishment for the filthiness of sin and the foulness of sin. And so Jesus is obliterated on the cross. But when you come to him by faith, This means that you get draped in the expensive, gleaming white righteousness of him. Jesus, who is absolutely clean, became unclean so that we who are unclean might be clean. And the way that you get there, the the way that you tap into this, is that that you basically do what G.K. Chesterton did. You admit that you're the problem. You kind of do that unbelievably honest, self-dismantling assessment of yourself and say, you know what, I am the problem. My heart is way more messed up than I think it is. I, mean, I don't know about you, but there are some things that I think that scare me. There are some things that I think that are frightening. And I think that just shows us, man, we are way more jacked up, way more messed up than we think we are, and the solution is to despair of ourselves and think there's no way that I can ever clean myself up and then come to him really, when we come to him, the great promise of the gospel is that he cleans you. He cleanses you. He pardons your guilt. He takes that which was dirty and unclean and guilty and makes it into something beautiful. Look, I'll end with this. There is, a, um, there is a park in Guelph, Ontario. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not sure. G-U-E-L-P-H. Guelph, Ontario. But there's this park with this river that's running through it. And the thing that's interesting about this park is that there's these statues all over it. You can look this up on the internet. You can see these actual statues. And these statues are, on the one hand, they're pretty ordinary because you have, like, a statue of a dinosaur, a statue of, like, a kid riding a bike, a statue of a mom holding a baby. But the thing that makes these statues really unique is that these statues were made from the debris that washed up on the shore of the river. So there's, you know, every year there, you know, tons of garbage gets washed up on the store. You ha- uh, shore. You have like um, shopping carts and tires and baby strollers and shoes and Coke cans and all kinds of just algae-covered garbage that would just the river would just sort of collect. And so the people of the city decided, hey, we can either take all of this garbage, throw it into a landfill, or We can bring in some artists and take this garbage and cleanse it and wash it and then sculpt it into these cool statues, which is what they did. I think Jesus in this passage is saying, look, we really are kind of covered in this algae filth of our own guilt and our own sin. But when you come to him, he cleanses it, he washes it, and then he sculpts your life into something that is beautiful again really the invitation for you tonight, regardless of where you find yourself, if you find yourself buried in the guilt and the shame, if you find yourself covered in that sense of like, I just know I'm not right. I just know that I feel dirty. The invitation is to come to Him. To cast yourself on Him, cast your burdens on Him, and let Him cleanse you from the inside out. It's the only thing that works. I promise. Consider that an invitation. Let me pray. Father, would you be gracious to give us the confidence to come to you, the faith to come to you. Help us to despair of ourselves and to throw away any other solution, any other strategy that we may have or entertain, but that we would really come to the end of ourselves and recognize and realize we are the problem. I'm the problem. Matt Howell is the problem. Father, I pray that that would, that that would not send us to despair into to depression and to darkness. But rather, it would send us into the arms of a Savior that, that receives us, that cleanses us, that floods our hearts with joy and with hope and with warmth. But Father, would you do that? Would you do that in my heart? Would you do that in the hearts of my friends here? Father, I pray especially for those in here that really do feel burdened and really do feel unclean. Would you, would you grant real freedom, real grace, that the gospel would be sweet to them tonight? knowing that they don't have to clean themselves up. They just have to come to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.